Hi, I'm Mark Gewisser. Every month I write an in-depth essay for Business Day about new literature, art, theatre or culture. Then I host a public discussion about the issues my essay raises, to which I invite some of South Africa's most interesting thinkers. This podcast is a recording of the discussion. Welcome to the Monthly Review. Tonight I am incredibly privileged to have two authors, thinkers, I think questers is a good word too, for, for the two of you. To my immediate right is Professor Pumla Goboda Madikizela, who, who, as Lukanyu told you, is the author of A Human Being Died That Night, uh, a book that treats Eugene de Kock and reconciliation in South Africa. Uh, she has become a, a, something of a global authority and, and muse on, on matters to do with reconciliation, transformation, and a, a particular topic of interest to her that we'll be talking about tonight, uh, intergenerational trauma. She is the research chair of historical trauma and reconciliation at the University of Stellenbosch. Did I get that right? No, <laughs> transformation. <laughs> Um, at the University of Stellenbosch. Next to her is her old friend, Wilhelm Fervut, who is the author of this book, Fervut, My Journey Through Family Betrayals. We're going to be talking about this book tonight. Uh, Wilhelm has had a career as a, as a peacemaker, I think is the right word, on three continents over the last couple of decades, mainly in Ireland, where he has worked with ex-combatants from the Troubles in Dublin and in Belfast. He very recently joined Pumla at Stellenbosch University and is working with her now on the completion of a project looking at what happens after betrayal, how reconciliation can happen after betrayal. And this is obviously a topic that's very personal to him given the title of his book, Favut, My Journey Through Family Betrayals. So welcome, Wilhelm and Pumla, and welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This book begins in Orania, uh, the white homeland in the Northern Cape, um, set up by Wilhelm's uncle, uncle, and at which his grandmother, Betsy Favut, was the reigning matriarch until she died. And it begins in Orania with the two of you at Orania. So I guess I want to begin by asking you, what were you doing in Orania? Why did you take her to Orania? Why did you go, Pumla? <laughs> well, I mean, it's a long story, but thank you very much for coming uh, tonight to listen to our conversation and hopefully to also ask some difficult questions. Uh, and that's been the journey with, with Pumla, where we've been able to, to also talk about some of the challenges we've ha we have. And, and I've been struggling with my family in Urania for obvious reasons, but then heard about a story that they were starting some kind of initiative with the Niameni community in the Eastern Cape. And I was intrigued by what is going on here, because I was hoping there's a way that one can work with people, even though they've made choices that I deeply disagree with. I mentioned this to Pumla, and we've often talked about different ways in which people engage with reconciliation. And so the moment I mentioned this is something going on in Urania, Pumla said, I'd like to go. Uh -huh. And I basically then, you know, was very happy that she was willing to go with me and, and to not only visit some of my family, but to also go into the memorial house. And the two of you knew each other from 
having worked together on the Truth and Reconciliation. Yeah, project. we did. In fact, just to add to the Orania story, it was an incredible experience for me. I mean, I never thought I would want to go to Orania, but what drew me to, to the idea was this story of this community in uh, the Eastern Cape near Hogsburg. The chief or headman uh, hears or reads about Orania and reads about how productive that they, they've become. They're planting, you know, nuts and, and other things. Just they've created this productive enclave. And he wanted to do the same for his community. And he started communicating with them. And they actually started drawing up a memorandum of understanding. So the initiative came from the Eastern Cape chief. Yeah. It was like tribe to tribe. Your tribe is doing really well. Your clan is doing really well. I want to understand. How, how do you do it? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And they want it. This is the idea. And I think this, is, this was, for me, this was very intriguing. You know, here is a black community, people living in the rural areas. They see something that we all criticize. You know, these Afrikaners want to create a country of their own. He sees something, he says, I want to learn something from, the, from them. And the uncle then re responds with another community and says, well, yes, let's do this. And I think for him, it meant also that some kind of story that might be told in the country and, and put a positive kind of spin to the whole idea of Orania. So what did you find when you got to Orania? Oh did my it, did, was it as you had feared or fantasized it might be? It was actually more than that. I come it, from a rural small town, a town that is now dominated by white business. People who own almost all the shops, they come in, they go out, they do not develop the town, they're not interested in the town. And so for me, being in Orania, it sparked an idea that, well, you know, there's something, I, I, I'm not, I'm talking about how to develop communities. There's something here that can be learned in the same way that these people in Emnyameni saw it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, you know, this is amazing because they, they from nothing, they, they grew trees and they had this business. And of course, well, there's a problem because it's an exclusive area, you know, they don't want any black people there. And there is this fantasy of, of, of it being from nothing, uh, a little bit like uh, the Israelis planted orchards in the deserts right. on land where there was nothing, where, whereas in fact it was land that had been removed yeah, uh, from well, the, the, Yes, that's a very important story to tell because they've built this place over the Orange River. We stayed at a beautiful hotel. I mean, I was amazed. This is why, for me, this was amazing. Here was a thriving place built on prime land. This was prime land on the river. This is why the, the, the fields are thriving, because there's water. It's easily accessible. Kumla, how did, they, how did uh, the people in Orania, Wilhelm's relatives, uh, respond to you as a black visitor? You know, uh, this is a, a very long story, but the <laughs> short end of it is that when you encounter people in that context, it shatters all your assumptions. You, when you encounter them in their homes and you find their generosity and their kindness, you kind of, it takes you back and you have to ask the question, are these the people that I've always harbored these, you know, ideas about how terrible they are, how bad they are, and yet this is how they behave. And it goes to show that really at the heart of all who you are, is a human being and what happens then 
the disruption of that humanness when people separate and, and can't reach out to others as fellow human beings, that's what we need to understand what happened. The question that I left with is, what happened? How can these people be the same people who say they don't want black people in Orania, they want to be alone, and yet here I am, you know, we have breakfast in his uncle, the wife makes a wonderful scrambled egg, you know, in the way that I like it to be made with cream. And so, and, and I take walks, you know, in, in Orania. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable because then you start thinking, who are these people exactly? Who am I in relation to them and who are they in relation to me? There's something very strange that happens when you bring somebody from one of your lives to another part of your life. You kind of leave yourself and look at yourself from above. I know when I have, I have a guests from abroad come to Johannesburg, I feel that. Were you feeling that, having a black visitor with you in Orania? was afraid. <clears throat> well, I wasn't expecting us to talk in depth about Orania, but I mean, it was a strange experience because I was worried that Pumla mm -hmm. is perhaps not getting the full picture, you know, in terms of we were meeting with some members of my family who would be more on the the, let's say, the cultural Africana racist wing, not the anti-black racist wing, which right. is also in Urania. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's a complex <laughs> mixture of the two. Sure. Um, but at this, and I was being critical, and I was saying to Pumla, you know, we should be more challenging, and why are you not challenging them about using their privilege to share it with the wider community? And Pumla basically said to me, just be, 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 be careful, look out for the nuances, and don't be yeah. too much of a a critical voice too soon, you know, no, and no. So, so she was encouraging me to almost be more open to them Just as well. So, so it was quite ironic. The two of you found yourselves uh, in your grandmother's old house, which is now a museum, uh, to your grandfather's memory. Yeah. And you found yourselves standing in front of a, a rather weird little display about your grandfather's assassination. Mm -hmm. And as the two of you were standing there, you told Pumla a story. Yeah. I wonder if you could tell us the story you told her. Well, <clears throat> let me just say, the, the previous time I, I visited Urani just to introduce my, my new wife from Australia to my family, I didn't want to go into that house. Uh -huh. I could not face that particular cupboard. And the whole uh, kind of uh, sanctification around the whole uh, uh, legacy. Pumla was keen to go into the house when we were there, and so we went in together. And while we stood in that particular part of the house, which has this suit that my grandfather wore on the day, on the day that he was assassinated, and, and you have these little pointers towards the, the, the marks on the shirt where the knife, yeah, the where the knife went, went, the dagger went in, and you can still see the stains. And so as we were looking to this, I was mentioning to Pumla a, a remarkable story that my mom only shared with me recently, just before that visit, in the, in the run-up to it. And that was basically that a few days after the assassination, they had a knock on the door. There were a couple of policemen with a big suitcase. They said, basically, we won't need this as for evidence for the trial, and we don't want to throw it away. And we thought, as the oldest son, we need to give it to you. My dad basically couldn't face it. Once they opened this, the, the, the suitcase, it was filled with the bloody clothes that my grandfather wore on the day he was killed. My mum, who has a phobia for, for, for blood, actually, she realized something has to be done. So she ended up taking those clothes, putting it in a big bath, and the museum sort of told them, don't use any soap, so only cold water, and you just basically have to press to and get the, the water out. the museum was telling her that was because 
these clothes needed to be preserved. For well, they were thinking, posterity, yes, yes, almost as holy relics, perhaps. Well, I think it became that. Yeah. I mean, at that point, they just didn't want to throw it away, and they want to keep it. And so she went through this process of not only once, not only twice, but over a period of two, three days, having multiple baths where she was just pressing the clothes, and, and it was basically just filled with, with bloody water. And, and the she, blood just wouldn't come out. Yeah, and I mean, and she was then basically saying how she can still, and you would, if you see her face, she becomes like viscerally contorted almost, and say, that smell of that, that blood, and, the sm and how difficult it was to get the, the, the stains from her hands. And what was eerie to me was that after they managed to clean everything, they put these clothes in a suitcase with moth balls to keep the fish moths away. And that suitcase was on the, in, in a cupboard, basically, in their bedroom, next to the room where I basically grew up. So this, this tainted memory of, 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 of a loved one was being carried along in a suitcase, but it was covered away and I didn't even know about it. So it became this metaphor for what was actually going on in my family and in my community. Now, now and you told to Pumla the story, and Pumla, you had a very strong response to the story. I think there's something that you are not remembering, Wilhelm. We were walking the morning before, and you told me about this suit and how your mother is connected to it, and how your mother used to wash and put it and hang it up mm. while you were at school. And when you come back, she would put it up in the suitcase every day until she got mm. the stains out. And for me, when I was listening to you before we went to the, to the room, you told the story further. But I think when we were taking the walk, there's something for me that spoke to the very depths of being a mother, a mother hiding this stain you know, this, this stain, this smell, this, this complicated story from her children. Trying to protect her children. Trying to protect her children. When you told me that, and, and I saw in your face how you were feeling for your mother because you were telling it in the same way that you're telling it now, I kind of felt also a visceral, you know, strong feeling of, wow, you know, how do you do that as a mother? Here you are, you are the wife of the son-in-law to this man who carries, who's done this thing to this country. And I'm not even talking, I'm thinking about her views necessarily, her politics necessarily. I'm thinking and responding to her as a mother at that time and looking at you and looking, seeing a kind of a, a deep sense of despair, feeling for your mother. And then I, I said, let's go and see this. Mm. And, and I could see how you were partly relieved, but also, I mean, it's complicated and also sort of not sure you want to do it. But, I, but for me, there was something about connecting with your mother. In fact, subsequently, I met, I met uh, Wilhelm's uh, uh, mother, and, and she told a little bit about it. But there was something for me that was really very evocative, and, and I wanted to see her. So, Wilhelm, in the, in, in the introduction of your book, the first chapter, you write a little bit about the effect of Pumla's response on you, the way Pumla responded to the story of, of, of your mother washing these clothes and the blood not coming out and, and the trauma connected with that. Well, I think for me it was another experience of, of a kind of cross-border empathy 
which for me was just remarkable. And I've experienced that with Archbishop Tutu in the TRC. I've experienced it with Pumla in the TRC. And I've experienced it with some other people, obviously, too. But, but in that moment, in that space, with this person representing so much pain to, to the larger black community, the larger community of South Africa, in that space, in this house surrounded with all kinds of memorabilia and honoring of this man, Pumla was still able to show this empathy towards my mother. And there was something that just, I don't know, it, it was just deeply, deeply, almost like something in me came alive. It was like there was almost like some of my own humanity was being gifted back to me by somebody who was on the receiving end of the, the evil of apartheid in that space to be willing to show empathy um, and, and compassion, really. I mean, in the, in the sense of this kind of visceral feeling with and for me, that transcended the deep, deep boundaries that, that's still within, within our broader society. It, it did something else as well, according to your book. Um, you, you, you write about how your Omar Betsy gave you storybooks every year. Yeah. And that when you were 12, yeah. the books that you all got were, were a two-volume yeah. history of HF Kavut. And inscribed by Omar yeah. Betsy, into yeah. these books were a, 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 a verse from Isaiah, uh, something that you said, you'll know it better than me. Look at the rock from which you've been hewn. Look yeah. at the rock from which you've been hewn. Mm -hmm. So poor old Wilhelm had this inscribed into his, mm -hmm. into his, the biography of his grandfather, age 12. Look at the rock from which you've been hewn. And yeah. you write in the book about how something about this interchange with Pumla moved HF Favut from being a rock and granite and maybe a somewhat oppressive rock and granite into flesh and blood. And that yes. seems to be one yes. of the um, yes. one of the objectives of this book, one of the quests of this book is to do that. May, maybe not quite, but perhaps yeah. you can talk about that process. What it was that Pumla unlocked that Pumla unlocked that got you thinking about the blood that you share with your grandfather in a different way. Well, this is deep, deep water territory. <laughs> and I'm very conscious that when we speak along these lines, me trying to almost humanize my grandfather, that I need to be so careful that that can be misunderstood as a sort of justification, excusing. I mean, so that's why I was so almost cautious to take Pumla into that house because I didn't want her to feel that we are trying to accept this kind of glorification of my grandfather. So, but I think at a human level, a lot of my work internationally has been about not demonizing people, finding ways to bring people into spaces of humanization through listening to the stories. And often the places of vulnerability, the places where people have, have memories of a loved one that was injured or killed or where blood entered the story, there was a kind of space for compassion across political divides. Mm -hmm. And something happened in that room again, where there was almost like I was given permission. And I don't think that's necessarily what Pumla intended, but there was almost as if he became also more human for me in that willingness well, it, to sit it, with it his to humanity. What she, what she was saying, and yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, uh, both of you, what she was saying is, yes, he is this rock, he is this granite. He is this, um, as, as uh, Chief Rattuli said, and you cite yeah. the author of our calamity. But um, the story you're telling me tells me that whether you like it or not, he is also your grandfather. Well, yes. And your mother is also mm. your mother. Yes. Mm. 
Um, mm. That seemed to be what she was saying. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Right? Mm. No, thank mm. you. I don't, yeah. Mm. Puma, I don't yeah. Know. No, absolutely. I agree that, you know, um, when I've spent many years of talking with Wilhelm and watching and observing him in interaction with others, and I know his struggle about his identity in name and being associated with uh, HF roots. But at the same time, there is a place in him that cannot deny that that is his grandfather. As he says, the blood, you know, the blood on his hand is the blood in his hand. This kind of, you know, metaphor uh, that at the same time is the reality of the blood inside my veins is the same blood that is kind of metaphorically on my hands. And how do you deal with that? And, and you know, how do you, you, you can either deny and say, I renounce this person, but the truth is you are very much part of that granite, you know, whether you like it or not. And what for me I find inspiring is the wrestling you know, it's the wrestling and the asking questions of who am I? You know, I am the grandchild of this man who has caused so much pain, who has committed this terrible evil in our society. I am the grandson. What do I do about it? There are people that who deny, I mean, those who have benefited from those policies. It's easy to say this is the evil person but so many millions of people benefited from it. And so Wilhelm, unlike people who will distance themselves, he actually puts himself, he gets his hands and his heart and his soul, everything dirty in order to wrestle with this issue. I mean, there's so many different ways of doing it. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the extraordinary book by Philippe Sands, East West Street, yes. which you probably yes. know, mm. and, and the documentary film. Yes that was made, I forget mm. the name of the film. If it's also the same name. Uh, is it also East West Street? I think it is. But anyway, yes. in the film there are two, um, there are two authors of Calamity mm. Mm. Uh, from Nazi-occupied exactly. Poland. Very good example. Uh, mm. uh, both of whom are directly responsible uh, for the murder of millions of Jews. And, and the film is a, follows two, their two sons. And the one son has um, absolutely renounced his father to the point that he keeps a little photograph of his father in his pocket all the time so that he can look at it every day to remind himself what evil is. The other has not really come to terms with what his father has done and keeps on trying to find excuses to, mm. to hold on to mm. how his father was a good man. Mm. Mm. And, and I wonder how, how you have tried to yeah. find yourself in, yeah. in that matrix. Mm. Well, I, I mean, it's almost like um, the TRC, people talk about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as a third option between amnesia and the Nuremberg trials. Is there actually mm. a way to sit with that tension of the evil that we have to grapple with without going those routes? Mm. And I sometimes wonder whether through my relationship with people like Pumla and Temba and 
my neighbors, the Mabebas, and many other people over the years that I've been gifted the possibility to say we are in relationship. Mm. He is your ancestor, like Archbishop Tutu said. He's your grandfather, he's your grandfather, he's your grandfather. And then to go a next step to say, use that in a way that actually contributes to healing. You're not a prisoner of that past. You can use what comes with that history as a contribution to reconciliation. And so it's that almost like shift which I think has been made possible. But, but Bishop Tudor also said to you, um, it's an unbearably heavy load to carry. No yeah. question. No question. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, it's unbearable mm, if mm. I try to do it on my own. Mm. And I mean, uh -huh. and that's where I'm trying towards the end to come back to that experience in Urania and, and many of the conversations we've had about that, about this idea of a kind of purified Ubuntu, not the kind of domesticated, commercialized Ubuntu that people like to talk about now, but a kind of real experience that my humanity is constituted by my relationships in relationship with the other. You speak and about, therefore, yeah. I can carry this burden because I am in relationship with people who are willing to be in relationship with me, despite the blood in my veins. Kumla, you wanted to say something? I wanted to say that I think, uh, yes, it is a, an unbearable burden, but the possibility of engaging with it that is created, I think, by this country, you know, being in South Africa, mm -hmm. the opportunity that we can have these conversations. You know, um, there are people in Germany who are children, daughters, and sons of Nazi perpetrators who I have worked with, who I'm still working with. And to watch the struggle there, it's, it's, it's almost impossible sometimes. And some of them have come to South Africa to be inspired to have these conversations. It's not the same thing, of course. And it doesn't mean also the other important thing is that these kinds of moments of engaging with, this, with these stories, the person like, like Valheim, engaging with other young white people to try and help them to navigate their whiteness in a society that is transforming not in a way that you know separates them from what is happening in the country but rather inspires them to engage with social justice issues i think that is where the power of the story of South Africa lies, that there's always this possibility that we can have these spaces like this, even if, you know, we're not being kumbaya, but we are, we are at the same time finding, searching ways of connecting so that once we hold one another's hands, we can all then say, now we must fight for social justice in our country. That is the goal. It's not necessarily just to love. It is for sure to love because love brings us together. But it's not just to say we are human, we're all the same. But it's rather to say, what do you do about it? Uh, the, and the, he is showing, in my view, The skeptic in me wants to say, that sounds very 1994. It is 1994, right? You are very right. It is 1994. The problem is that we then abandoned it. You know, the 1994 was very, was a moment of learning what can happen if only we take steps to do it. We did not. We did, but only for five years. And then we went back to our ways. This is why this work on intergenerational issues is so important because we want to understand, you know, what, how can we make, how can we actually engage in a much more rigorous way to, to take things further in our country? You're right, it is 94, but the problem is we left it there. We did not, 94 was a, was a, was a, 
was a moment of saying, this is what is possible. But then we abandoned it. I'm, ho I'm holding in my it. hands a, a book that Pumla has just published. It's in fact being launched this weekend. It's called These Are the Things That Sit With Us. And it's edited by Pumla Gaborda Madikizela together with Frederica Bubenza and Mariki Ulofsson. Mariki is here. Oh, welcome, Mariki. Um, it is, Pumla, why don't you just say very briefly what it is? I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, but why don't you just introduce the book to us very so we can have both Wilhelm's and Pumla's book Very on the table. briefly, very briefly. The book um, is, we call it popular publication of research in a way that the people whose stories we tell can hold the book and, and say, this is my story. We started research in Langa, Bontevel, and Worcester. The idea was to look at what are the continuities from our past? How do we understand the notion of transgenerational transmission of trauma? Now, many of you will know that trauma, the whole field of trauma, was developed around the study of Holocaust, Holocaust victims, Holocaust perpetrators. The boom of the field of trauma really emerged because of studies in that field. And so even this concept of transgenerational trauma, it was a study of children of survivors of the Holocaust. Now, it's a concept that has been used everywhere, transgenerational trauma. The second generation must suffer from transgenerational trauma. But we sat and thought about what's happening in our country, particularly after 2015. And we realized that we have, we have in any case been thinking about these concepts and their applicability to our context, not just South Africa, in Cambodia, in Rwanda, in South America. Can we use this same concept? And the answer that we are working with is no, but we have then to elaborate why no. So we started this project interviewing uh, adults, people my age who have experienced apartheid and, and older, and their children, and, and to try and, and understand, can we talk of continuities from the past to the present in terms of transmission of the trauma in the way that it is understood within the survivors of the Holocaust, so, or is there something else going on? This that is book, specific to South Africa. That is specific to South Africa. This book, a short story, shorter stories, of the older generation accepts from their larger narratives. So that's what the book is, and its format is it's these series of short stories with really exquisite photographs, very moving photographs. But the reason why I thought of it right now, um, coming out of our conversation about 1994, is you begin it with an incredibly provocative uh, epigram, a quote from Ellen Kuzwayo um, from her 1990 book, sit down and listen. And Makwazwayo says, things happen. People tell stories about them. Then life passes quickly. The events and stories are faintly remembered mm. or totally forgotten. Mm. But in the black communities of South Africa, perhaps we remember our stories for a little longer than other people do. Mm. After all, for so many years now, we have owned our stories while owning so little else. Mm, mm. And I'm wondering why currency. you began that book, this book with that citation, and how that links to a, a possible failure of the 1994 project. So, so there are two, two things in that, in that story. One that is an acknowledgement that 
people tend to forget. You must move on, you know, move on, forget the past. There is always that tendency to say people must move on. And yet, if you have suffered from these kinds of traumas, mm -hmm. how can you move on from your trauma? Because it sits with you, it stays with you, it's a story, it becomes, in a way, it, it defines you. Trauma defines us. And so, there is no, you cannot forget that story, even if you wanted to. So for us, it's a sense, it's a message that these stories have to be told in order for us not to forget, in order for us to reconnect with what these stories mean about our past. But I think that Ellen Kuzwire is saying it's not enough to just tell the stories. Yes. Because stories don't buy bread. Right. At the same time, the stories don't. At the same time, it's a reminder. It's 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 our currency because in order for you to do something about my circumstances, you must hear my story, and the hope is that that's where the bread will come. Because if I am powerless to do something about what happened to me, maybe in the telling of the story, it will move you to the point of taking up action and doing something about it. It becomes a kind of, you know, you're telling the story in order for action to take place. So that's where the, I mean, it, it's, we have different interpretations to what authors mean by what they say, but for us that is what it meant, that the stories have to be told in order to engage others in questions about this is the past that people went through and this is where I was at the time, this is not right. And so the kind of questioning then begins. That is the hope anyway. I suppose thinking about stories and what the purpose of stories is and, and why you have written your book, Wilhelm, and what your book's about. As I was preparing for this evening and reading your book, a, a few lines of verse kind of got stuck in my brain. And they are the favorite lines of verse of your grandfather's assassin, Dimitri Tsefendis. And they are, he, he knew them by heart and he said them over and over and over again in his, um, in his three decades of unspeakable hell. Um, and they are lines from Nazim Hikmet, the Turkish poet, because Tsefendis lived in Turkey for a while and actually could speak some Turkish. And the lines are, if I don't burn, if you don't burn, if we don't burn, how will darkness lead to light? And I guess I'm interested to know whether your story and the putting of your story and the making public of the, of the pain of your very difficult relationship with your family isn't perhaps a form of self-immolation to, to light the path for others, mm. or whether you see it as having I mean, that's what Tsefendis did, mm. he self-immolated. Mm. Uh, and he self-immolated for having killed HF for foot. Um, now, there are members in your family who believe that you have killed HF for foot again by having spoken against his legacy. Uh, but you haven't self-immolated. Mm. I think you're trying to do something else by, by burning brightly, by telling mm. your story. And I wonder if you could yes, think that through for sure. Um, you, you are opening some big questions there. Um, let me just say, and I'm, I'm very conscious in terms of South Africans of color who are here tonight, that the original intention with the book was to do white work in response to young black South Africans challenging people like me, in response to my neighbors, my black neighbors in the village where I live, challenging people like me to say, we are tired 
of actually having with our anger and with our pain to educate and to awake, to, to shake people awake in South Africa to what is really going on and what is our history. So, so there was definitely a challenge to say, what are you willing to do to go and challenge your own community, your own family, your own church, your own racial grouping? And that's why I wrote the book firstly in Afrikaans, which was actually a very difficult thing to do because I sort of almost moved away from that very narrow cultural world. And I realized that if I want to reach people and to actually get them not just to shut down and not just to say I'm a traitor, which of course is the expected response, but perhaps to invite them to go on a journey with me, starting where I used to be as a young person, and then hopefully traveling a journey of coming to a point where I begin to see the reality of what Verwurt represents for the majority of black South Africans and why he is such a hated figure. But before I can, if I, if I want them to go that route, I also need to be able to show that I'm not rejecting him as my grandfather, that I also am not demonizing him. So, so it was a bit of a, an attempt to see whether one can sit with that tension between what he represents for the Afrikaner community and my family as a hero, which is very difficult to understand for people outside that community, which goes back to the Anglo-Boer War, by the way. Mm. Um, so that's a whole story. But then to sit with the pain that he represents for the majority of people in this country. And, do you, do and to sit with that tension actually is irreconcilable. And, and in that sense, that's what reconciliation, I think, has to mean. It's not rainbowism. It's not cheap, domesticated Madibaism. It is actually a much, much more challenging journey. And what I'm hoping to convey is that by doing that, we actually become human. You, become, you come home in your skin and in your king and in your and who you are. And so that it's not a message of gloom and doom and masochistic self-flagellation. It's an invitation to be real and to be honest about who I am and in the process to really come awake to what it means to be human in this country today because of relationships with people like Puma. So transformation, because you're... you're the unit at which you both work there mm. is 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 a is called uh, historical trauma and transformation, rather than historical trauma and reconciliation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I imagine that's very deliberate. Mm. From like, even though I keep mm. on messing it up, yeah. uh, and transformation might be about acknowledging the irreconcilable. Is, yeah. is that what you feel? Well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a tricky balancing act because you want to, to, in a sense, name the challenge and, and do it in an embodied way, not in a theory, but to actually say, this is how I experience this. But at the same time, try and say, but this kind of acceptance of shared responsibility is actually the only route that I think we will be able to have a home for all in South Africa. Your, your because then we deal with the social justice your, coming your, out of that. Your book is a, has an outward journey, which you've just described, and in this outward journey, um, Helen meets many of his friends, many neighbors, fellow South Africans, and he lives in a very interesting social experiment, an intentional community outside Stellenbosch that he describes, called Leindach. But it's also a, a journey, in, an internal journey. Yeah. And it's an internal journey to try and reconcile yourself um, to, to, to some kind of love for your grandparents. And there, there are many strategies you use to do that. You, you dig deep into, for example, your grandmother's fascinating and quite beautiful diaries. 
do you feel that at the end of it, um, you were able to to reconcile the blood on your hands and the blood in your hands? <clears throat> I, don't, I mean, I have no easy answer to that. And I don't think it's a neat answer to that. Um, and I think it is, I mean, the moment I go into my grandmother's diaries and I get involved in their lives and I've become emotionally drawn into their story, especially around the mourning period after his death, I mean, I emotionally connected with her and with him in a way that I haven't done before. But the moment I do that, I go home and I'm, I'm faced with my neighbors and all the challenges that they face that is still a result of what my grandfather represents. So, so you move between these worlds in a way that is not like reconcilable in a sense. As you said. But, but, I but at the same time, it is, I don't want this to sound like some big um, negative burden that, I mean, there is something very liberating about going into that space of discomfort because it is a way to actually be more real yeah. and, and in the mess of our country to actually say there's meaning in something that I can contribute. I, I wonder, Pumla, what we've spoken quite a lot about what that initial encounter uh, meant for Phil Helen, uh, the initial encounter with, with uh, the bloody clothes in Orania. I'd like to explore a little bit more of what it meant for you, what, 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 what you learned from it. Um, how you've how you've taken that experience, and I want to put it into the context of the work you've been doing since I first met you. Um, the, the, the first time I met Pumla, I was blown away by her because she was a truth commissioner who was interested in white pain, uh, so much so that she convened a um, special hearing of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, for victims, white victims of the border war, to express their pain. The mother who wasn't able to open the coffin when the coffin was sent home. And you've had a very, very interesting um, political and intellectual journey around trying to understand the pain and vulnerability of white people. And that's quite controversial in, in this day and age. Um, there, there's a there's a lot of uh, mocking, some of it quite legitimate, of white fragility and white tears um, by, by the Black Lives Matter generation, by fallists. And I'm interested in how, how you responded to Wilhelm and how you respond to, to the discourse of white pain um, coming out of yeah, it. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you're raising so many layers to, to the way that comes to mind for me is the complexity, the ambivalence. You know, um, that night of the day we went, we were in Orania, and several days afterwards, you know, these moments are revealing about oneself, but they are also revealing about the state that we are in as people in this country. I've had opportunity to travel and to witness the pain of Germans who are struggling with the fact that they are children of perpetrators. I've had a chance, I was in New Zealand where I spent time with Maori people who are struggling with being denied, you know, their history and Aboriginal people in Australia. At the same time, 
I've met people in these countries who are doing what for them is their best to confront this history. And what I come out with for me is that we can't take these moments lightly. We can't simply dismiss these truths as stuff that, you know, we have to forget about, you know, what happened to white people. I'm not talking about people who don't care about the country. I'm talking about people like Wilhelm, people who are engaged, people who are thinking about what does it mean to be white in South Africa now? What does it mean to be black in South Africa? What does it mean that, how can we be together in this struggle to really make a change in our country? I know I'm not answering your question directly, but for me, all of these moments arouse questions that are not always answerable, but are about how then we can take one action, even if the action opens new questions. The point is not to sit back and to judge, particularly when a person like Wilhelm and others want to engage. It's not to reject them simply because he's white, simply because he's the son of Fervut, but to say, what can you learn from this? What are we learning? And for me, as a scholar, there is the personal, which is a black South African having suffered under apartheid as a child and as an adult, and as a professional. So the personal, at the same time, is trying to figure out how do we conceptualize this? How do we create new knowledge? So that, I mean, everything is about knowledge. People quote all these philosophers and these political theorists and so on. What are we learning from our country? Where have you seen this kind of book? I sent this book to my colleagues with whom I'm writing a book, to Germans, Willem, to children yeah. of Nazi perpetrators and who are in dialogue with children of Holocaust survivors, direct survivors of the Holocaust, children who are German, they're adults and they're in their late 60s. I sent them the book. They're not talking this way about their struggles. It's a big struggle because they don't have language. Here, Willem can, can say, I live next door to such and such, and I have these conversations with them, and they are open to hearing my story. You do not see that in other countries. So for me, it's sometimes it puts myself as a person and wrestle with the ambivalence of, wow, you know, this is the story of Wilhelm as my friend, and this is what happened to, you know, this is what is happening to him. But his grandfather is a person who is an architect of this evil, you know, that oppressed my people, the consequences of which we are still witnessing today. But then the question is, am I going to be stuck with the name Felwoods, or am I going to look into what is happening today? What is it that you and I, and Wilhelm and I, can do in order to create a better life for our children. I've seen this in Rwanda. It's complicated. You know, one young woman in Rwanda, people come, scholars come, and they say there's something going wrong here in Rwanda. And yet people in Rwanda are struggling. And so we're sitting with Wilhelm and other colleagues of ours around the table with children who lost all their families. They are girls now. They're young women with their own children. And we try to understand how is it possible that you can sit with, gone to a community where victim, someone who 
who, who lost everything is sitting next to a man who killed their whole family. And they're saying, we want something different for this community so that the children who are playing outside can have a different future. How do you understand that? So we're sitting with them around the table. And one young woman says something that really struck us all. She says, not to do this will be like dying again. And so you hear these kinds of stories and another one who says, who, again, he's a young man, he's 21, this is the 20th anniversary when we're there. And Valem asked him- The 20th anniversary of the genocide. Yes, when we were there, 20, 2014. He asked him, what would you say to people who say, I mean, forgiveness is a complicated word, but we use it anyway. So he asked, what would you say to people who say, you have the living can't forgive for the dead. And this is what, this is also, you know, a kind of story or line or framework that is used mostly within the Holocaust literature. So he asked, this, he asked him this question, and this young man says, well, the problem is this, that if I continue to do what these people did, and I hate on behalf of my father who is dead, then what will I tell my child? Will I tell my child to go and kill as well? So it raises all these questions for me because when you live together as neighbors in the same country, there's a different kind of way that we must think about our future because we are in this country together. Why South Africans have got to focus on the idea of the pain that people carry, the real pain that people carry, and all the legacies of the past that have brought us to this place. At the same time, black South Africans who are in this room, we are privileged because we, are, we can come to these spaces. You know, we have to think about how can we create new conversations so that through those conversations, we build, open up spaces for possibility that you can then feel enough for me to say I want to be in this fight for social justice so that we can make a change in this country. A, as, as you were telling that story about the interchange with the, with the young man, I remembered a line that you cite in your book from Richard Raw, the Franciscan monk, untransformed pain is transmitted pain. Um, and so maybe just concluding with that, perhaps you could reflect on having listened to that Rwandan and how you, you're taking that experience and Richard Raw's observation into how you're dealing with your legacy as a Fafus. I mean, I think for me, the, 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 one of the most distressing things in the current climate is this notion of white fragility, where people, the moment the difficult conversations enter the room, the moment there's a bit of a challenge, there's a, a sense of also with younger people, I think of, of, of the next generation, the moment people talk about the past or the ongoing legacy, we try and hide from it or we try and avoid it or we become defensive or we become the victim. So, so I think what I'm trying to do is to say we need to find another way to, to, to engage with this very uncomfortableness, to engage with this painful history, even though it feels like betraying our loved ones. We have to go through that kind of painful 
journey so that we can become human together. We Even cannot, if our loved ones see it as a betrayal. Well, they, they will, your, yes, your they, will, they, will, they will see it initially as you are now putting other people's interests above our group interest or you are actually you're, you're, you're shaming, you know, mm-hmm. the family or you're actually somebody who's given his life now, you're disrespecting the sacrifice. So, mm-hmm. so these are deep issues that people feel and I don't want to just dismiss that. But if that becomes the last word, then we end up with what we're having in Israel and Palestine, where the people I've worked with there, the combatants for peace and the parent circle are saying, we have to find ways to work together because we have to break the cycle of blood, where we just retaliate with revenge upon revenge, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. So so we have to find a way to break that cycle. There's, there's and another, I think that's what we're trying to do. There's, a, there's another um, way of breaking the cycle that's been presented very recently, using the image of your grandfather. I don't know if you've seen it or how many mm. of you have seen it. Mm. The Amnesty International campaign yeah. Mm. Yeah, I saw that it. has a photograph of the smiling for yeah. mm. And then across where his smile is, is the catchphrase, wipe the smile off his face. Yeah. Wipe the smile off his face by making sure that young South Africans uh, are able to claim their right yeah. to education yeah. in a society where, as we know, we're failing Thank miserably you. Thank you. Uh, to educate people for healthy and productive lives. So I, I wonder what you think of that solution, and also both of you, what you think of using Favut as, as the kind of face of apartheid, the smile of which has to be wiped off. You know, so, sorry that I'm jumping in before you. I, I saw that, and, and what, what came to my mind, I mean, I was looking at this and i thinking, wow, you know, um, this man is dead so many years ago. We're dealing with a, with a legacy today that could have been transformed, you know, 25 years down the line, and it has not been transformed. And for me, I thought the image that came to mind is that, well, this image is misleading because this man is dead. We, we have to have images of the now. I thought, for instance, for me, I thought, well, shut down the greening grimaces of the men who have wasted our resources in our country and have plowed this country into this disarray and and into this state of utter, you know, destruction because of all of the stuff that has been happening of stealing people's, you know, futures right under our noses. Wipe those greens from those people rather than wipe this the smile from, from Fervut. Fervut is not here. These people are here. And these are the people from whom we can wipe whatever we need to wipe from them, from their grimaces, from their greens. And, and, and we can fight that fight now because these people are living and they are the ones who, there is a legacy of course, but in terms of changing the course, these people who are the perpetrators of the destruction of the future of our children are the ones we should be focusing on. For me, this idea of putting up this man who is so long dead, and there are South Africans here who benefited from those policies. How about confronting them with that history? Forget this man, he's dead many years ago. What you, what, how do you respond to the campaign? Well, I need to be careful, given my positionality, but, but I, I've come to understand in many interactions with black South Africans, South Africans of color, that that the name for Wurt, as Archbishop, as, as Chief Lutuli said, he, be, he becomes the personification of a system. 
and the whole Bunty education system was probably one of the worst features of that, of, of that whole period, because for generations we've had this systematic underinvestment. So that a lot of what we still see today is the intergenerational legacy of that too. I agree with obviously what Pumla is saying, but I need to be careful to, too quickly to begin to point fingers at the current government because it becomes a way of avoiding the historical continuities. And so for me... The what about pointing fingers at ourselves? Well, this is that the thing. Is the as, issue. As, as understanding no, so, ourselves is all... Exactly. All of us beneficiaries. Exactly. Certainly all of us Absolutely. in this room the, as beneficiaries. That's well, really the challenge, Mark. That is the challenge. That is not to deny that there is a legacy you know, the education is a mess. The bunch of education was a mess. We, we were brought up by bunch of education. But really, when we look at the opportunities for transforming this education with all of the organizations that have been knocking on the, on the doors to say, this is what can be done to transform this system, and it has not happened. And part of the reason is that the resources are just not there. I mean, why are we still talking about all of the problems that we're witnessing at these schools and young people still struggling in the rural areas? And I know this because I come from these areas where some of the schools can, should not be called schools at all, you know, in the way that they are formed. So where is the challenge? The challenge is us. What are we doing about it? We're not... Are we, are we taking action? Is there something that we are doing? And so I think that that's where, you know, that's where this story should begin, to challenge us. What are we going to do? I suppose when I looked at that ad, and I, I, I thought about that ad in the context of our discussion, and in the context of your statement that you made um, that, that was so striking to me, uh, trying to deal with the blood on your hands and the blood in your hands. Mm. And, and when, I, when I first heard you say that, I thought, but the blood isn't on his hands. Why is he taking this on? And, and then when I looked at the Favut uh, image in that campaign, I thought, well, actually, the blood is on all of our hands. Mm. And, and there's mm. a lesson I feel I've learned mm. uh, from reading your book mm. uh, and from uh, engaging with your word, work mm. from that, mm. about that. Mm. And on that note, I want to end and thank uh, Pumla Gaborah, Madikizela, and Vohel and Favut. I'm going to open, let's first give them a really provocative, fascinating conversation. We are really not meant to go for much longer than an hour, but I imagine there are some questions and thoughts uh, from the floor. So I'm going to take two rounds of three questions each. Uh, so my question is really about, I'm 26 years old and I didn't really experience apartheid, so all I know is my, the, the school curriculum I've been through I know from society the conversation, that's all I know, it's just reflections and, and memories, that's all I know. But uh, at 26 years old, I'm still in South Africa, I'm young, black, educated. Suddenly, a lot of my white peers are leaving the country. What is your book trying to do about this reality right now? Is it in any way trying to heal our generation, or is it really the generation before? And mm. What, what do we do now as black young people now seeing that other people are leaving? Where's the national interest? Mm. Where are we going as a country? Are we getting traumatized right now? Because I feel so sometimes that this is traumatized for people to be just leaving because they're upset, they're worried, they're anxious. So what is your response in this current uh, generation? Thank you. Mm. Thanks. We're going to take two more. Mm. Okay, I am Wonga. I'm 26 as well. Snap. <laughs> um, and I'd like to ask a question about the discursive politics of white writing. 
I was very intrigued by you saying, in writing your book, you're doing white work. And it reminded me of a, a piece that the philosopher Samantha Weiss wrote a couple of years back. And she proposed... Speak up again as well, please. Okay, she proposed um, that white people, when engaging in public discourse in South Africa, should opt for silence. So I'm just wondering, uh, do you think that's a viable option? Why is it something you haven't chosen yourself? silence that is and um, do you not think that putting out a book like this at a time like this is in a way recentering whiteness recentering white figures thank you and then in the front thanks we'll, we'll do a round in the back next thank you uh, can you hear me my name is George Lindicu uh, I have got three things to say very short First of all, I have the doubtful privilege to have been in Parliament when Favut was killed in 1966, and it was happened about for where you sit and where I'm standing from now. Number two, I am very pleased to see my friends Pumla and, and Valalamia this evening, and number three, I've come to honour them for what they are doing to, to fix South Africa. Thank you. Fix. So, Wilhelm, there, there was a question about white flight and then another question about white work. Thank you for those uh, questions. Um, where's the first speaker? Very sorry. Um, I mean, I'm very troubled by, by what is happening with, with a younger generation of, of white South Africans, partly because they include my children. So it's quite uh, immediate and the challenges that they, that they are trying to navigate. And I'm troubled by the lack of historical awareness that often is, is given to them through their education system. Um, I'm troubled by the tragic effectiveness of apartheid still today in terms of segregated neighborhoods, separate schools, white majority spaces, cultural spaces where people basically move in a comfort zone that makes it quite difficult to really understand what was going, what is going on in South Africa. And, and that unless we get to a point of real engagement and real sharing of our understanding and our experiences and young white people realizing I can be part of something really meaningful, difficult, challenging, but I can be part of something that contributes to a story that actually is needed in the world, which is polarizing more and more in terms of where we're at. Mm. So some kind of an inspirational vision I think we, we need to work towards. And, and I hope that some of that will will help. I mean, one of the stories, I won't go in too much detail, younger people who have read the book in the Afrikaans white community have said to me they find it very helpful because it helps them to understand their fathers. And many of their fathers, like me, have gone through a militarized masculinity phase. You know, the whole thing around conscription and men in the army and the police and, and the violence in families and the aggression and the, all the stuff that is the legacy of that militarization is haunting some of these young people. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that intergenerational transmission mm -hmm. that Puma referred to, which I'm grappling with in terms of my grandfather and my father, I'm seeing how that is being transmitted mm -hmm. within that particular community and how then it sometimes it's easier because the fathers and the mothers are sometimes quite embittered or they feel disillusioned. That energy is then transmitted, like knowledge in the blood, as Jonathan Janssen would say. That makes it then easier for them to justify leaving. Fortunately, some of them are coming back, but I hope that more and more of them will come back, realizing that, I mean, as this book written by Azil Kutsia, it's in Afrikaans, but it's called In My, in my Fell, In My Skin. 
and she's just back from three years in Holland, realizing it's so boring, all this kind of, everything is organized, everything is, you know, comfortable. I want to come back and be part of something that's much more life-giving, risky, challenging. And that's the message that I think young people in that particular community need. Because I agree with you that the second wounding, I mean, there's the first wound of what my grandfather did, what my generation did. But the way in which the next generation is responding or not responding is adding salt into your wounds. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm also trying to say. And then you become complicit in continuing the transmission of that pain by not responding and not taking shared responsibility. I'm very conscious of the white recentering thing and, and I'm conscious that I have opportunities. I've got, op you know, there's, 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 a, there's, a, there's a, an ability to, to enter into public spaces also because of the name. And how am I grappling with this? I have to say that my hope with the book initially was to reach the Afrikaans white community. That was my primary audience. My second primary audience was English-speaking white South Africans oh, yes. <laughs> who tend to struggle a bit yes. to accept shared responsibility for apartheid. I mean, one of, the, one of the bits I added to the English version of the book is a quote in my grandma's diary about a, a, a gathering in Natal, as it was called, in 1963, where the National Party was having one of their rallies, and how hundreds of people from the English-speaking community were also there and were also cheering him on, to the point where some of them were singing, for he was such a jolly good fellow. Which and so I'm, I'm using that story as a little window to say humbly to my fellow English-speaking white South Africans, we have a lot of issues that we still have to deal with between us as Afrikaans-speaking and English-speaking, and especially in the English-speaking wider community hiding behind liberalism and progressivism and like we were not part of apartheid is not going to change things. So we need to find a way to do that. So I'm hoping that my third audience, which is people of color, black South Africans, I hope that they will understand that that's the main intention and that I'm entering this public space with a kind of humility, hoping that, that in some of what I say, there is some acknowledgement for what the systemic violence of apartheid was about. Because the point about journeying through family betrayals is that when I come to the end of my conflict with my father, where he accuses me of family betrayal, my fundamental response to him is apartheid was systematic family betrayal mm. in this country. Mm. That's our responsibility. Mm. And I am not a traitor in terms of that. I'm not going to be a traitor of that as well. And we need to speak out and take responsibility for that. And I hope that that's the intention that you would hear with, with humility. Um, I'm intrigued about the Vervoort uh, being used as a symbol of the ad campaign, uh, first of all, because it turns once again to Vervoort as a social trope, as a symbol, uh, which is shot through a society and its history and its identity. And in many ways, the TRC in '94 was a symbol, a social symbol of the opposite. Uh, it was the answer. And you've spoken, uh, both, both of you have spoken about the potential for a third way without addressing the fact that, the, that both of those symbols exclude the potential validity of a more visceral, visceral response to the entire experience of apartheid as a black person, which has to be one of hate and anger. And 
fallism partly has brought that back into focus. The resurgence of certain uh, forms of black consciousness ideology have brought that back into focus. What is your stance on, on dealing with a counter position that is in fact more extreme and more violent and actually there's a case for saying it should be, that that is justified? Good evening, Huyanand. Uh, so I'm a product of colored education. If we just refocus the way in which education was uh, implemented and administered. And I was in trick in 1976 and I didn't go to school for an entire year. So seeing Furwood's image was a very traumatic experience for me having lived through the imposition of Afrikaans. But my question really is in relation to your book and because you uh, visited families in Pontieval where I come from, well, the neighboring uh, so-called colored community, 47 deaths this past weekend, Continue the, the co stories of continuity, I'd really welcome your views on the imposition of the military on the Cape Flats, Nyanga, and Guguletu, and the impact for transgenerational trauma and violence. Thank you. Okay. I had a conversation going back to 1994, and that's where I get stuck. Because I'm going to go back to TRC, and that's the setting of my question. When I'm talking to my friends and we're trying to navigate this journey that we were all walking as one country, we always get to one conclusion that black people forgave in 1994. But to this day, anyone who's my generation, the response is, no, my father or my mother were the racist. I was not part of that. So therefore, I, I have nothing to apologize for. So what I'm asking is, if you then go and start move to the structure of the society where part of the apartheid, it may not be pronounced as a legislation, but it still pronounces itself in the subtleties on how people progress in the society. So what opinion is your book making on that? And secondly, what is so hard with the generation who were beneficiaries of apartheid whether you, were not, whether you were two or four, what is so difficult to say, I'm sorry, I hurt you? Okay. Okay. Um, well, Adam, do you want to... I'll say something briefly and then obviously sorry, yeah. hand over to Pumla. Um, thank you for that. Let me start with the last question. I mean, I'm hoping to convey something in the book, in my conversations with black South Africans and South Africans of color, to older generation people who were talking about their experiences under the system. Because I was trying to, to juxtapose that with my grandmother's diaries. And one of the intentions to do that was to convey something of a, an addition to the TRC process, which unfortunately only focused on a couple of categories of gross human rights violations and didn't have the mandate or the time to really focus on the systemic larger violence of the system. I mean, we had the institutional hearings, but those were quite limited towards the end of the time. And my sense is that younger people today are growing up with that limited historical awareness, which sort of individualizes the bad people like Eugene de Kock and a few people who were directly involved, but do not grapple with this beneficiarydom of, of the systemic violence. 
and that we then start to confuse the two, that when we say you're a beneficiary, we're not saying you're a perpetrator in the sense that Eugene de Kock is one, or that I am, but that we've not been good at, at navigating that linguistic, but also the kind of facilitation you need to take people to a point where they can face up to that responsibility in a way that's actually creative and not a kind of legalistic running away from guilt and sort of, I didn't do it, I didn't intend it. That's a very limited understanding of responsibility. So, so I think there's a lot of work needed to, to broaden what we mean by responsibility in terms of our relational connections. Like in my case, my grandfather is dead, but the legacy is there. I have some responsibility to address it and I can do it. My children, they might not have been involved in what I've done. They were not voting for the system, but they are benefiting. How are they using that to contribute to address the legacy? So I think there's a lot of challenges for us there. And I hope that somehow the conversations opened up by the book in the white community, the Afrikaner community, can help with some of those conversations. And a lot of my time at the moment is spent working with the next generation and trying to do that kind of intergenerational work to avoid the situation where people say, I didn't do it, I wasn't there, so why do you blame me? You know, and basically we just add salt to the wounds. The, the question around, the, and I'll just say something around the, the, the much more angry um, um, justice, social justice, righteous anger. I mean, I really think there's a, a need for that. And I think people, especially in the white community, need to be able to find a way to get curious about the story behind the anger and not become defensive so quickly. And, and so quickly begin to say, but don't, you know, that's destructive anger. And I think, unfortunately, the language of forgiveness and reconciliation sometimes is used to censor and marginalize that kind of anger. And religion is used and abused to silence the kind of lamentation, you know, the shouting and the anger and the crying that we find in the Jewish tradition and that we've lost to a degree in the Christian tradition. So we need to bring that back and find a way to work creatively with that, definitely. In November last year, there was a meeting that brought together some white people from Wilhelm's church and black people who were coming to listen to Lucanio Kalata. And Lucanio uh, speaks... Lucanio uh, Kalata's father was murdered by the apartheid security forces very violently, very brutally. Fought. He was one of the four, four activists who were murdered in Credoc. They're called the Credoc Four. And he talks about how his story is not finished. His family has not finished. They still sit with the pain for something that has not been concluded, not knowing the truth. At the end of that conversation, which was he had with Wilhelm in church, one priest, one white African priest, as we're walking out, says, but this man is not forgiven. He has not forgiven. And this is what you're talking about. That is easy. Black people are expected now that we talk reconciliation. This is the tragedy, unfortunately, that because there was that turning point moment in 1994, white people feeling, oh, now we are, we are now exonerated. We don't we have to do anything. We've all forgiven and reconciled. And this is the problem with this language of reconciliation and, and, and forgiveness. It's missing that point of confronting that past. What does it mean that one benefited from, from the past? This book, when we went to Bonteavel, the people in Bonteavel and in Langa and in Vosta, we can see that the pain, these people are now in their 60s, some of them in their 70s. 
There were children when they were forcibly removed from District 6 or from Claremont or from any of these areas. They forcibly moved. One man talks about how his home, he says, my home was like, an, was like a, it was a huge home. We had a big yard. We've got a long passage. We were free. And now I'm bringing my children here in Bonteval. It's like a prison because we've got to lock everything. You know, and we, young woman talks about how she travels out of Bonteval. She feels free. The moment she gets on the taxi, she knows that she's coming to a prison. So people are still in pain, and we've got to understand that the pain is real. We've seen it at universities. To, uh, to, to kind of respond to your, to your question. At universities, I was at Bloemfontein, I was, I'm now in Stellenbosch, and before I was in Cape Town. What happens at these universities is that young people who come to these universities, first of all, white young people are brought up in homes where they, nothing has changed. You know, as my mother said once, she shook her head, she said, white people, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed, and so which means even in their homes, they are still, there's nothing that has changed. There is no sense of mixing and, co and communication with other groups in many families in South Africa. And so these young people are, are taught the same language and the same narrative of hate or of, of, of suspicion or, you know, of, of, of inferiority of black people, they come to university. They are forced to be equal. They sit in the same bench and they are taking the same tests and sometimes black kids beat them and get better marks. And so in the university, they cannot be white in the same way that whiteness is known as whiteness. And it confuses them, actually it doesn't confuse them, it makes them angry because now they can't claim that power of whiteness because now they are on this plane, they have to be equal. So that is on the side of white people. This is why I think it's easy to leave the country because they are seeking places where they can be white, where they can really know what white supremacy means because here it's confused, they have to you know, share and they've got to Sometimes they are under a, a, a black person who is managing the, the hostel or, or a, a lecturer who is telling them what to do. They can't deal with this because in their homes, it's a dissonance. It's not, you know, it's not the kind of truth that they want. So they leave. What we have found in our university, in these universities, is that actually parents encourage their children to leave so that when their children are settled, they can follow. This is the strategy. Now, for black young people, this is the part of the anger now. Many of these young people, universities are no longer these elitist institutions. Everyone who does well at school can come. Universities offer scholarships. There are scholarships, possibilities. And they come, many of them come really from deep, deep poverty, and they're carrying it from the past, from their parents. Nothing has changed. It's post-apartheid, but for many of these young people, very little or nothing has changed. They know that they are poor. They come to this institution, and then they f are face to face with privilege. They knew that they are poor, and now they have to face just how poor they are. And I think it exacerbates this awareness of their circumstances mixed with a sense of history plus a sense of the present because they are poor in the present and they are now encountering a privilege as it is and it makes them angry. Now, this is not just anger, free-floating anger. The reality of having to live 
Stellenbosch or a campus like Bloemfontein or UCT every day to go home, to go into a taxi, maybe two taxis and a train. Every time, as one student said to me, every time I come here, I have to kill myself in order to live. Students talk about assimilation. Du Bois talked about double consciousness, but I think it's something deeper than double consciousness. I have to die in order to live, in order to be accepted, in order to function. I've got to kill myself. And then he says, every day I go back home from the first taxi, I have to resurrect part of myself. Every text, I have to resurrect part of myself. Now, think about it. Think about it. Imagine that. What does it mean in the mind of the person who has to live in this kind of life of having to kill himself in order to be every day? At some point, something is going to explode. And this is what we are witnessing. And so the call is, you know, this too has to be understood that these are not just stories, they are not just narratives. They are real life experiences of people who live side by side their trauma, whose trauma is real. They face it every day when they go back home. Now, what do we do about that? We do not deny it, we face it, and then we face ourselves the fact that what it means to be privileged mean that you are in relation to this person who is bringing the story of deep, deep sense of poverty and knowing that it's not going to change. Because listen to this now, they get their degree sometimes and then they have to wait four years, five years without getting a job. Now, all of this exacerbates and adds to what I call the lived experience of trauma. It's not the trauma as you are tortured or you are shot with a bullet, but it's the lived experience of trauma. And that trauma is very, very disruptive and destructive to the soul. It destroys the soul because every day this is what you live with. And so if people who are privileged don't understand that and can take the steps to do something about it, then we really are going to face this doom. It is time that we face that and together as citizens in this country begin to think about doing something because we live in it. Every one of us think about what actions we can do about this. I'm sorry, Mark, I have to say something because I see in the audience my friend Namsa Tina Siwendu, who is Judge Siwendu. She came, we invited her to speak at Stellenbosch about what we witness as the increasing levels of suicides at our universities. And she sent out a call, and her call was her own son suffered from this condition, and, and she lost her son in this way. And she made a call, her video, if you want to see it, the video is on, is on YouTube. And she speaks very powerfully about our responsibility as citizens to do something and come together. She started already, even though she's a judge, calling women together to say there is a crisis here. Let's forget the politicians. Okay, let's not forget them because we've got to challenge them. But we have to do something as citizens. This is what it means to be an engaged citizens. And this is certainly what we try to do with our students who are doing research on racial microaggression, racism in sports, 
you know, the daughter of Kalata who is in our office doing research and working, you know, and doing in conversation, all of these kinds of things are worthy of being examined so that we understand them, we can conceptualize them, and then in the end we can say, here is new knowledge, we've got to transcend all of this and connect because it's our responsibility, as you were saying. It's not the fervent smile. He is responsible for the legacy that we are in when we look at what is happening to the majority of our people. However, the responsibility is ours. And this is really the call. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, I feel that, that both of you have really done what I want to happen in these conversations, which is to use the printed word or, 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 or the drawn line or the spoken word if it's a play uh, or the filmed word if it's, a, if it's a film, I'm going to be writing about films too, to use that as a, as a kind of springboard to have a, to have a, a very deep conversation uh, about what this country is about right now and who we are and how we engage with each other. And I feel like you both have have modeled this um, brilliantly. And I want to thank you both for having participated and come. Thank and you. spoken so, so frankly and, and deeply about your experiences and your journeys and your place. Thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. Thank you.